Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast, episode 26. Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Jack Mountain Bushcraft School founder and master main guide, Tim Smith. I'm your host, Tim Smith. I'm a registered master main guide, and in 1999, I founded the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School. We help people become more skilled, more knowledgeable, more experienced, and more confident outdoors by using traditional skills, a few simple tools, and field-based experience. Whether you're looking to go from city slicker to competent outdoor professional, want to experience a remote expedition, or just want to learn a few new outdoor skills, we've got you covered. You can check out the show notes to this and all of our podcasts at blog.jackmtn.com. When you're there, click on the podcast button. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Lastly, the best way to keep up with our programs and trips is to join our email newsletter. And you can do that at jmbnews.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Smith. And today we are going to talk all about registered Maine guides. The history how you become one, uh, the testing process, where it is, where it's going, and where it's been. So this morning I'm joined by Christopher Russell. How you doing? Pretty good. Yourself? Good. And Ed Butler. How are we doing today, Ed? I'm doing pretty good. Awesome. We're in the guide shack. It was about in the low 30s last night. We didn't quite get a frost, but we hear the geese, the leaves are falling, Uh, autumn's on its way, and thank God I've had enough of bugs. Yeah. I'm ready for them again next June, but right now, I'm happy to see them go. I just want to get back to the point where my sweat is contained inside of an outer layer of clothing rather than just sweating. And you guys in podcast land know that in a survival situation, in a near-death occurrence, you should avoid sweating, right? You should work, especially in the wintertime, work just hard enough until you're about to sweat. But you don't want to actually sweat unless... Your 80s R&B sensation, Keith Sweat. Because Keith Sweat is just going to sweat. <laughs> I concur. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about registered Maine guides. So in 2017, I can't go anywhere, online or off, without running into one of these celebrity outdoorsmen. And I think you probably have all seen them or are aware of them they have knives named after them and they're busy trying to put their name on every technique and piece of gear and it's all about branding and it's all about this and in many ways we've sort of lost any connection to the real world or to the forest which is hopefully where all this stuff started um so yeah we're not huge fans of celebrity outdoorsmen here nothing wrong with them or what they do it's just i feel like the focus is misplaced um not where it should be but anyway there is still uh there are still links to the past with regards to um outdoor traditions that go back you know before the latest greatest piece of gear or the you know the titanium unobtainium spork slash knife combo and i gotta get one of those all that uh malarkey and one of the most well known is the tradition of the main guide um 
uh, you know, back in the day, and you know, even still today, Maine's a pretty remote and wild place. Given in 2017, there are logging roads all over the place, but from the road into our field school here in Massardis, the other side of the road, it's about 85 or 90 miles due west to the Quebec border, and in that in that land, there's no pavement, permanent residence. No towns, no gas. You know, it's it's littered with with logging roads and such. Mm-hmm. But it's a huge piece of ground. Um, and back in the day, when there were no logging roads, the only way in was by rivers. So you know, you'd get really remote. Maybe you were at best a week's travel from any sort of definitive town. So when something went bad, uh, it could go bad really quickly, and people would die. So. Um, you know, just like in other remote locations of the world, travelers to that area would hire somebody who had local knowledge and a skill set that would keep them safe and help them achieve their goals. So one of the earliest um, one of the earliest guides that we have uh, was when Henry Thoreau in the 1850s came up to northern Maine. And he hired a native man named Joe Polis. And if you've ever read The Maine Woods, uh, you know, he, Joe kept Henry safe and entertained and and showed him the way. And it's a great read, probably one of the first travel books uh, ever written. And one of the really cool things about Maine is we can go to those same places and they're as wild now. So for example, if I'm reading Lewis and Clark and they talk about traveling through some canyon and looking at Indian pictographs. And then I go to that place, maybe, and I'm in East St. Louis, and it's an urban area, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. But in Maine, if Henry was talking about coming down the west branch of the Penobscot, you know, and camping here or camping there, we can go to those same places or, or coming down the east branch. Uh, we go to those same places, and they're still wild. And I can stand there and cast a fly in water. Uh, that Joe did back in the 1850s. Yeah, whereas in St. Louis, where I lived for a little while, the one of the spots where Lewis and Clark camped and overlooked this beautiful stretch of river, you can now sit on the deck of a bar and look at this beautiful river. That Not necessarily a bad thing. And well, you know, it depends on what you're looking for that poor, night, I suppose. And poor maligned Clark, right? I heard he just kept wanting it to be the Clark and Lewis expedition, but Lewis always got top billing. I, I don't understand that because I'm super neurotic about alphabetical stuff, so he should have <laughs> got top billing. He really should have. Um, anyway, so flash forward from Joe Polis in the 1850s, um, late 1800s, actually uh, March 19th, 1897, Maine created a guide license. So an official license that you had to hold. Uh, and the very first holder of a Maine guide license, the very first Maine guide was a woman um, who went by the moniker Fly Rod Crosby. And she went around to sportsman shows all over the United States um, just selling people on Maine uh, and did a pretty good job of it. Yeah, sort of a, some of the stories about her are funny. She, at some sports show, showed up in a buckskin uh, above-the-knee skirt that she had made herself and was like caused havoc with all the uptight people. I, I like stories like that. Yeah, like a, a short buckskin skirt in a Victorian era exactly. of political correctness that makes for interesting reading. Yeah. Right? It makes for an outsider. Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I had to get my one bad pun in. I apologize. No, no. <laughs> so things progressed with uh, Maine guides um, up until uh, 1975? Yeah, in 1975, the up until that point, the way that they had kind of done getting your guide exam was just that you had to kind of have a relationship with the local game warden and 
he kind of would give you the okay, kind of say this person knows what they're doing, give them a guide license. And then in 1975, they instituted a sort of standardized testing process for people to go through. And up until 1986, you would be a general guide. You just had a guide license. And in 1986, they broke it down into specialized categories, um, hunting, fishing, recreation, and they've since added uh, uh, sea kayaking, tidewater fishing or saltwater fishing, and they also have a specialized whitewater rafting, um, whitewater rafting license. Uh, so after 1986, if you were to test and get a hunting, fishing, and recreation specialized license, then you were a master guide. And a problem they ran into was people taking classes on how to pass the test with no experience at all, um, who were wearing a patch that said that they were a master guide, but they had never guided at all. So they rectified that in 2002 um, when they changed the process to become a master guide to uh, you had to have 10 years of experience documented in the field, at least five of which you were actively guiding. I think in a certain number of hours each year. So I think that was a great step forward just because, um, you know, who wants to, uh, I think that, well, I think it was a great step forward because you know, it made it more like any other field. So if I'm, a, if you're somebody is a master electrician, let's say with no field experience, just because they passed a test, the end result there is they're going to get electrocuted, right? Uh, so Anyway, I think it's always better when people have some field experience to document it before they can Absolutely. put master after their name. Um, so what's the, the definition of a guide, at least as far as Maine goes, is someone that receives any sort of remuneration, their word, not mine, or compensation, my word, not theirs, for their service as a field in helping people to capture game, fish, camp, travel, whatever, in remote yeah. places. So we're going to talk a little bit about the process of becoming a guide. Um, do you want to jump in on that? Yeah. So I uh, last week took and passed my guide exam for recreation. Um, and it was, a, it, it was a fun experience, to be honest. Um, the people that run it aren't super hard on you. They want you to pass. They like seeing other people that love doing this stuff because they've been doing it. Uh, the two people that interviewed me were a retired game warden and a... Uh, retired guide who'd been doing it for about 30 years and um, yeah so you walk in and you do a written exam portion that you know covers a lot of the legal stuff as well as basic knowledge of uh, sort of keeping people safe in the outdoors and then they go into um, the practical side of it which is you do a navigation test which is testing your ability with map and compass and reading a map well um, they go into a lost person or catastrophic event scenario where they give you kind of a, an outline of an event that's happened while you're hypothetically guiding a trip and they want to see how you would act with that. They want to make sure that, um, you keep a level head and you can kind of keep everybody safe while you're doing it. Um, the, then right from there, they'll go into a, an even more hands-on practical side where they'll pull you into a room filled with gear and ask you about it they'll do field id where they're pointing at pictures of animals and plants and making sure you're not taking somebody out and telling them a dog is some kind of coyote or something like that 
and it, it, like I said, it was a lot of a lot of fun because it was just talking to people that love doing what you do, and it didn't feel like I was being hassled while taking the test. It just felt like a conversation, almost like that whole thing about passing muster with a warden or a guide, like just making sure they kind of just want to get a feel for you and your personality, and make sure that you've got the mindset to do this job. So just to recap, there's an oral exam a written test, a practical exam, a map and compass practical exam, mm-hmm. and a catastrophic scenario yeah. portion. Yes. Anything else? Uh, well, they there are prerequisites. They want you to have a, uh, a first aid uh, certification before you go in, and a couple years' experience in the field um, is what they're hoping for. So it's a challenging thing. As an educator, I realize that it's a very challenging thing to design a test, to test whether someone knows a certain body of knowledge or not. Mm-hmm. And this is a, I think this is a very challenging test uh, to make in order to test, you know, if someone's ability is up to snuff, mm-hmm. if they're going to keep people safe. And really, you know, the guide test is more about keeping people safe and not breaking the law and figuring, you know, maybe you'll learn more about the actual art of guiding when you're out there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a very difficult thing to test, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if I, I definitely taking... shouldn't have passed. No, there's no way you should have oh, passed. Oh, absolutely not. I've written them a letter every I day. I wouldn't trust myself to bandage a paper cut, let alone take somebody out in the field. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a challenging <laughs> thing to test. Um <laughs> Uh, and you know, so I guess my point there is, um, you know, I would say that passing the test doesn't mean that you're qualified to guide a trip, but I would also say that not being able to pass the test definitely means that you're not qualified to pass, to take people out. I can't win with you, Tim. No, no, it made sense. Passing the test does not mean you're qualified, but not passing the test definitely means you're not qualified. Yeah. Yeah. There's a better chance you're not qualified. I'm going to go yeah. have a good cry. I feel awful about myself now. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a difficult skill set to yeah. test, right? And I guess my point is I think that there are people who can pass the test that maybe would be terrible mm-hmm. in a backcountry situation. And, you know, there's obviously whenever there's a test with high stakes such as this, there will be businesses that sprout up that are going to try to teach you how to pass the test, you know, not unlike. SAT test prep mm-hmm. or whatever GRE test prep. There's there's main guide test prep. You know there are schools that'll teach you how to pass the test. And um, you know one of the negatives is that unqualified people maybe will sneak through. And the reverse you can just is, say it, Tim. The reverse is also true. In that you know maybe there's an old guy who's been hunting his entire life and knows every fishing hole from Fort Kent to Kittery. And exactly when they're hot and when, you know, what they're going to catch fish on. But based on, you know, the way that the test is set up, might not have all the the book learning to uh, be able to pass. So, again, it's not a perfect, um, it's not a perfect test. Mm -hmm. Definitely not. I have, I sometimes think about how interesting the idea of passing muster with a warden is because that's a relationship you've established. That guy knows you pretty well and he can, he can... Because, you know, as you gauge your experience and how well you do in the field. And I understand why they standardize it, but there's something about the idea of passing muster with a warden you know that makes a lot of sense to me yeah. for being a guide. No, I would I would agree that it's yeah. more about... Because I think it's easy to pull the wool over somebody's eyes and guess the right multiple choice question mm-hmm. and, you know, 
regurgitate what you were told. Tim, it's 2017. You pulled smart wool over people's eyes. Right. <laughs> Which is wool that is more intelligent than other mm-hmm. wool? Okay. Higher IQ. Is it from smarter sheep? I have to do the research. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so that's kind of the process of how you would go uh, go towards it to getting the license. You know, once once you have the license, you know, then all bets are off. Um, it's sort of license them all and let the market decide. Mm-hmm. So if you know, once you have the license, if what you're offering is good and you're effective at getting the word out, then Maybe you're able to keep doing it. Yeah, it's a tough. It's a tough thing to do. I think there's about five thousand registered Maine guides in Maine right now. Is it five or four? I think it's five at the last one. Wow. Um, but not everybody's doing it full time. It's a tough. It's a tough gig, and like you said, the market kind of decides who who does well in it. I'd say less than a hundred do it full time. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's a good second job. Yeah. But most people will get a guide license so they can sit at the diner, drink coffee with the patch sewn onto their sleeve, and talk about how much smarter they are than everybody else which is what we're gonna do when we're done recording well if they would let me back in the diner i'd be oh, doing it but, you well, know, yeah, we is. have to overcome that hurdle <laughs> anyway um so yeah the uh that's the process so um ed you uh can you speak to that to, to the different uh guide training courses at I, all? Uh, yeah actually and i don't mind talking about it um because I have a history of uh, not testing well, let's say, in a lot of situations that I thought I thought it would be interesting to uh, do some pre um, to do some pre testing. Uh, so basically, you know, there's a there's a there's a couple of schools out there you can you can go and participate, and uh, they give you example scenarios. They teach map and compass and so forth, and I think that's really important. Even if you're not going to be a main guide, it's a good outdoorsman course, sure, or a, a, a woodsman yeah. course, if you will. But again, um, having gone through the process, I can see where, uh, yeah, okay, you can pass the test, but maybe that still doesn't qualify you to be a guide and responsible for someone else out, you know, out in the out in the wilderness scenario. So. I think it's a I think it's a positive thing, but it, it certainly back to what you were saying. Just because you pass the test doesn't mean you're competent guiding someone in the in the main woods or, or any woods for that matter. And suppose uh, from what I understand, the main guide certification, what you're going to, to which test which for which I'm, I'm leading yeah. up to is that uh, it's kind of interesting because I'm sitting beside Tim, who's been a, a master for well, you've been a guide for over 20 years. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. not really great with math. It's yeah. either like a week or I don't know. Well, that's not it feels all. like a week. But that <laughs> math isn't part of the test, actually. Thank Thankfully. God. And I got Chris to my right, who uh, recently passed his exam with flying colors, I might add. Uh, and I'm I'm actually going for my certification uh, next month, so I'm kind of I'm nervous and excited all at the same time. But uh, you know, I've done I've done a lot of homework and reading and so forth, so I'm just looking to get it out of the way. But um, Again, not to, uh, it kind of gets back to what Tim was saying, that getting, getting the certification, what they, I believe what they want you to do is, is use your certification Amen. guiding. In other words, if you're going to be a canoe guide, if you're going to take people out camping, if you want to, some people may want to see a moose or you want to hunt bear or moose or whatever, I think the important thing is that you use your certification. Um, and, and that's, I think, what they're mostly looking 
to get out of you as to what you're going to do with it. Because if you, I think honestly, if you go in there like and just want the patch to, to wear into Starbucks with, uh, you know, the latest uh, vintage wool shirt you just bought on eBay, they don't want that. They, they Not that there's anything wrong with that, and I don't mean to uh, talk smack about anybody. But, but that makes you a hipster sexual, though. A lumbersexual. Lumbersexual. Yeah. We're not great at terminology up here. We... We're glad to have you in the real world to, to fill us in. <laughs> Me in the real world? Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I didn't... You're all we got, Ed. Yeah, and that's a weak link. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, speaking of wool, I'm sitting here in three layers because I think it was, what, 35 degrees last night? Yeah, it felt good. So when you wake up and, you know, it did, but uh, it kind of gets you back to the reality. Uh, you know, it's like, okay, you got to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, you know, walk across, you know... Uh, cold. It's just being out here and, and actually being out here and, and, and preparing for the day and stuff, it gives you a good taste of what it's really like out here, not just, you know, waking up, turning on the laptop and watching the latest, greatest video on YouTube um, of, of some... Of uh, working class woodsman. Watching the latest, greatest working class woodsman. YouTube. I haven't have, I haven't really heard of that guy. Is he like some <laughs> sensation or something? He really is. He's a yeah. sensational piece of work. Is that working class woodsman? Working class, at working class woodsman. You can find him on all the social media platforms. I would use the term <laughs> sensation, but I don't want to belittle his his YouTube prowess. <laughs> and we'll, we're going to leave that at that. But anyway... <laughs> I wouldn't want to. <laughs> so, so anyway, yeah. Just like I say, I'm, I'm in the process of, of trying to tr- uh, going for my certification, and it's kind of funny because now, being around people that are involved in the process, those are the only people I'm really talking to. And when I step outside of that circle, no one really know, thinks about it or knows much about it. So, it, it it still is a small part of what's really going on out there, you know, being a guide and so forth. But I think more and more people should. I think it's a tradition that needs to be, um, uh, you know, maintained. Maintained, and uh, I don't know. Um, but I say, get your certification if you want to be a guide. Get your certification and think about what you really want to do. Do you want to be a canoe guide? Do you want to do you want to take people camping? Do you want to do you want to uh, take people out on moose hunts or, or figure it out what it is you want to do and then and then stick to that and use it. And find people that are doing it and have done it for a while and talk to Absolutely, them. Absolutely. And yeah. make sure you have a real idea of what this job is. Because like we said at the beginning, there's a lot of people that are, uh, you know, celebrity outdoorsmen. And that's not the job of a guide. There's nothing wrong with being a celebrity outdoorsman. But the guide, you're a, you're a beast of burden. You're a chef. You're a self-taught businessman. And there's a lot more that goes into it than having awesome experiences in the outdoors. 10% of it's fun. 90% of it is hard work. Well, it's a it's a job like any other yeah, job. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. So, you know... I didn't mean to get doom and gloom. That's okay. Well, we you got to be Chris. <laughs> we get asked a lot what we do here um, at the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School. And we are a vocational training center licensed with the VA for guide training and outdoor leadership training. But that I like to draw a hard line in the sand saying that we are not like a test prep guide training place like we try to teach people how to do the job and what the reality of the job is we don't necessarily teach people how to pass the test so there's just just a little bit of a difference there Mm. um and anyway just to circle back real quick uh 
Ed here is a humble guy, but he's caught more fish and shot more deer and bears over the years than most people would ever even imagine. So, you know, that thing about, you know, if you do have a difficult time with the test, I think it's just a result of it not being the greatest test, yeah, right? It's not I agree. a reflection of, of you because of years and years and years of experience of being out and doing it. But they do have, I think they sell them down to Kittery. It's the uh, unregistered main guide patch that you can get and the registered main poacher pass uh, patch. Ooh. Of, of which I have both. <laughs> <laughs> and, which is available on the website. <laughs> awesome. Oh, man. So, yeah, one last uh, little bit here. I want to talk a little bit about kind of the modern main guide. You know, I don't think anybody going down uh, testing for a guide license today has any illusions that they're Joe Polis taking Henry Thoreau through the wild great beyond. But I do still think that, you know, I love the idea of the professional outdoorsman, you know, in a world of celebrity outdoorsmen. So guys that look the part, you know, you could walk into some cafe somewhere in New York City or something with a main guide patch and a wool shirt and everybody will, you know, the hipsters would fawn over that person. Um, you know, in a world where that's sort of the currency that we're trading with, I love the idea of somebody who's just out there day after day, year after year doing the job. Of- well, it's funny because I actually tried that going to New York, uh, you know, talking about what I did out here, and they immediately told me to leave the bar. said I smelled like campfire. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. True story? True story. Nice. I'm going to drive back down here from the semester. Oh. I was asked to leave a bar in New York because I smelled too much like campfire. Well, we had a guy two years ago. This is what? a funny story. At the end of a semester, he had like a Filson tin cloth, like a wax canvas jacket. Mm-hmm. And he wore it every day. And he got on a flight here out of Presque Isle. To, it was Presque Isle, Boston. Then he was flying to like Florida. Yeah. He got on the plane. They, they had to get him off the plane because they thought there was a fire. Because his clothes smelled so much like wood <laughs> well, smoke. And then, and they then evacuated my, the plane. And then on my semester with our good friend and uh, the ice cream eating legend that is Rafe Bowman, he was told he could not check his bags unless they allowed him to Febreze them first. So yeah, we live, we live a very romantic, beautiful lifestyle oh, up here, awesome. as you can tell. I, and I'd quickly like to thank Chris once again for shooting down another one of my ambitions is to come out with a cologne that smells like campfire and sell it to the hipsters in New York. So... And I guess I didn't. I didn't intend to uh, take anything away from you. Well, I was just the market is, research says that you'll be asked to leave. Would you call it like for smoke, like Febreze, but with smoke? Well, it's still we're working on. It. You know, it was all patented. Smacks body spray. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we gotta stop. But uh, what do you? You know, here's a guy that comes out. You know, in wool clad, quoting Macbeth every day. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on, Ed. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, back in the day, people would hire a guide to uh, keep him safe in remote expeditions these days not as much of that happens a lot of it is more um from it's gone from straight guiding and a lot of people these days want to learn so a guide now is an educator Mm. add that to the to the list of of job Mm -hmm. description titles obviously there's still say someone wants to just shoot a bear shoot a moose get a trophy salmon you know there are people with that skill set and knowledge base and that's the currency in which they trade but in general, it seems to be moving more towards um, educator as as part of it. Sure. Well, I, it, it, there's certainly a trend, and um, kudos to you for uh, picking up on that early on. There is a trend uh, in the education f- educational field to to teach people 
uh, more about the natural world and how to exist with it and mm. not quote unquote live off the land, but live with the land. And this is a really good example because it's my first time up here at Jack Mountain Bushcraft. First time to Masardis, technically. And I'm pretty blown away. And as Chris will testify, when I'm relaxed, that's 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 quite a statement. And I've been up here for three days now, and it's just like, you know, the, the world really does kind of, the outside world really kind of does fade away, and you become real involved with what's going on locally. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's very, edu- it's been educational to me just to be here for a few days. So there's a lot to learn that I never even uh, thought about, to be honest with you. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. No, I just, you know, not blowing smoke. Although I do have to say you being relaxed makes me very unrelaxed. I don't know how to cope with it. It should. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, last point, you know, where I think all this is going as we move forward, right? We're not, we're not going back in time. You know, there's, there's not going to be another fly rod Cosby. So Crosby, so where do I see guiding going in the next 20 30 years and we work with a lot of young people who are super motivated to get into this industry um and this is what i tell them is that you know as we become more urbanized as a culture cities keep growing like arusta county keeps emptying out and rural places around the country keep emptying out so more people are being raised where the only nature that they encounter on a daily basis is inside of a glowing rectangle be that on tv on the internet or whatever or pigeons or, or pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have a good recipe for, by the way, on my YouTube channel. <laughs> Thank you for salvaging that for me, Ed. <laughs> so as people become more urbanized and don't have that direct link back to the landscape, they are going to want to to relearn that, to build those connections in places where they've been severed. And I think that the role of the guide or the outdoor teacher or outdoor recreation instructor, that sort of thing will be as an interpreter for those urban people when they enter uh, wilderness or remote areas. So with that in mind, as our population grows and becomes more urbanized, I think that there's a bright future for guiding for recreation, um, you know, hunting, fishing, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. I mean, to sum it up, a a guide's duty really is, is first, first and foremost safety. Uh, to make the environment safe for the for the client or the guest or whatever you want to call it, to provide a good experience and to pass on a tradition. So hopefully they'll continue. You know they'll learn more and and become more involved with the natural world, if you will. Whether it's hunting, fishing, or or just outdoor camping or anything like that. And it, it's it's kind of funny because growing up in a very rural area of New Hampshire, I just kind of think a lot of this stuff is second nature to most people, but it isn't. I mean. When I see a lot of people pick up a fishing rod for the first time, I realize you might as well give them a chrome bumper and because it's just unnatural to them, whereas they take to other things more naturally. So you kind of forget when you're familiar with something, it doesn't mean everyone else is, and you'd really need to always go back to the beginning and, and talk to people. And, and um, You don't know what someone's gone through up to that point in their life, so uh, never assume that they know how to do something or just just because you've done it a million times you know and it doesn't make you smarter than them it just you happen to have experience in that area that definitely you know yeah. there's an old saying that i don't know who discovered water but it wasn't a fish so mm. when you live your life and have tons of experience with something often like you say you just think it's second nature and you don't notice it but to someone who's never seen water you know they discover it and oh my god look at this sort of a thing so exactly yeah 
we don't when you're raised with something because it was somewhat similar with me you know rural kid fishing rod in my hands as soon as i could walk st- stuff like that that mm-hmm. you know now middle-aged guy i you know like you say i sort of think oh geez doesn't everybody know that and you know the reality is is funny i have friends urban friends and i go to visit them and it's the classic fish out of water story to use a bad pun when i go down to the city because i'm like what do you mean i can't like just spit wherever i want and you can't drink the water and, and you know it's it's not you know like a bad hollywood movie but it's it's getting more towards that as i get older yeah, well, growing up in sort of urban and suburban areas, but with a family that was super outdoorsy, it was interesting to see the the shift. So watching people my own age that I would talk about going hiking and talk about fishing and stuff like that. And even people that I were the same age as me and lived in the same place had no idea that they had access to that kind of stuff. And it, it is it is interesting to see the different stuff people want to do with their time. And so a trend that I've noticed, uh, especially with the in the last 10 years, is um, it seems like a lot more formally educated people want to live in the woods so that kind of tells you know what i mean it's like a lot of the people i run into now uh have uh, could could do anything they want in in this walk of life but they they tend to want to live more remotely live closer to the you know closer to the natural world and um live in the woods for lack of a better term so that kind of tells me something right there mm. you know it's not just uh it's not just uh, being born into it. It's 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 a lifestyle that a lot of people want to adapt to. Yeah, agreed. So, yeah, that's kind of off the guiding thing. But. No, but I think that's kind of what he gets said about education. Like hmm. our job is to help those people learn how to do that. And I think exactly, yeah. I think that that's super important. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. Thanks for being here today, guys. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, we're going to let this one go. And hopefully you'll come back and listen to us again sometime. Have a good one. Mm